He was climbing down a rope. He did nothing but climb down a rope. It was a white rope, so white that it shone of its own clarity in the pitch black darkness where it and he existed. And it stretched up high above him, infinitely high, so that as he looked, he could not see where or to what it was fastened. But that it was fastened both above and below was clear, for it was taut in his hands and between his legs and twisted expertly round it. The descent was perplexing, for he never felt himself move, and yet he knew he was continually farther down, down towards the bottom of the rope. Once or twice he looked down and saw only the twined white strands stretching away in the black abyss. He felt no fear. He climbed, if he climbed, securely, and all the infinite black void did not terrify him. He remembered that he wanted to remain on the rope, but though he saw neither top nor bottom, he was sure, in the dream, that that was impossible. He climbed down, or else the rope climbed up, and about them was everlasting silence and the black night in which he and the rope only were visible and only visible to himself. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. I'm Chris Pipkin, Associate Professor of English at Emmanuel College and dilettante extraordinaire. And joining me today, we have Serena Higgins. Serena recently received her PhD from Baylor University, where she studied magic and modernist theater. And she's a faculty member at Signum University, where she also coordinates the Writers Forge coaching service. She's the editor of the book, The Inklings and King Arthur, which I recommend, and is currently co-editing a volume called Gardeners of the Galaxies, How Imaginary Worlds Teach Us to Care for This One. Serena, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well and very glad to be here. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. Super excited. And we also have returning to us, Megan Logsdon, founding member of the Inklings Variety Hour, big Charles Williams fan. How are you doing, Megan? I heard y'all were talking about Charles Williams, so I had to hop back on. <laughs> we are so glad to have you. Continuing around the horn, we've got someone who's not beyond our help, nor are we beyond hers, Sophie Burkhart. Sophie plays around in the podcast world herself by musing on philosophy, theology, and literature and beneath the willow tree. I encourage you all to check it out. How are you doing, Sophie? I am fantastic and I'm ready for round two. Finally, last but not least, we have David L. Carter who holds an MA in theology from Episcopal Divinity School along with an MA in English literature from North Carolina State University and a master's in library science from North Carolina Central University. He served as a hospital chaplain, an instructor in English of English and humanities at the junior college level and is currently employed as an academic librarian. He's the author of the recently published novel, The Rat Reverend Clancy and the Seven Sacraments, along with four previous novels. How are you doing, David? Excellent. Glad to be here. We are so glad to have you, and I encourage you all to pick up The Rat Reverend Clancy. It's great fun.
Let's talk about Descent into Hell. Like Williams' other six novels, Descent into Hell is a spiritual thriller in which everyday decisions made by ordinary modern people hold profound moral and metaphysical meaning. Unlike most of Williams' other novels, the book features no enchanted object, no grail or tarot deck that serves as a catalyst for redemption or damnation. Its unconventional plot and lack of gimmick nearly cost the world what is, in my view, Williams' most mature and complex novel, with some of his finest prose and most dazzling theology. And folks, feel free to differ with me there if you want to. Turned down by his usual publisher, it was published in 1937 by Faber and Faber at the intercession of Williams' friend, the poet T.S. Eliot. Descent is about the choice between escape or communion in a range of interactions in the fictional town of Battle Hill. Whether deciding how to best read poetry or how to react when meeting your own image walking toward you, it's clear that for Williams, there's no such thing as a non-supernatural situation. So I want to hear from both David and Serena. When did you first read Descent into Hell and what was your reaction? It must have been in the 1990s. I had never heard of Charles Williams. I was getting ready to go to grad school. I wanted to be a religious studies professor. And I came across a book by a woman who was going to be my advisor. And she mentions Charles Williams as a friend of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. So I got interested and was able to find just about all of the books pretty quickly. I worked in a library then as well, and through the magic of interlibrary loan, was able to get a lot of them. And I just remember Descent into Hell and All Hallows' Eve and Shadows of Ecstasy really making the biggest impact on me. Probably Descent into Hell, at least certain passages and certain aspects of it, particularly uh, the second chapter that we were just talking about really sticking with me as being such powerful writing. I first encountered it right after undergraduate. It just blew my mind, but I, I didn't understand it at all. I didn't understand what was happening. I couldn't get into the syntax. The whole first chapter is potentially really alienating. Talk about in medias res, it just jumps right in to all these sort of private references and all these pronouns with no antecedents and these people that you don't know. There's, there's no setup, there's no exposition, just dives right in. But I will never forget the impact of the doppelganger sequences on me. <laughs> I didn't even understand what ultimately happens with them, which we won't spoil today, but I didn't even understand that until at least my second, maybe my third reading. And then I read Thomas Howard's book on the Williams novels, which is a very handy introduction and really explains the novels in quite simple terms. But I do think that he oversimplifies and over sanitizes the novels and takes away or tries to take away a lot of the weird. So I'm glad that on subsequent readings, I've gotten back into all of the weird. Yeah, absolutely. Listeners, if you uh, were put off by our first episode it's not our fault it's williams it's it's uh, difficult to kind of explain in a dynamic way right um there's just so much philosophy and theology and you know everything else just kind of mixed deeply in like baked into the plot and the characters wait christopher this novel has a plot yeah <laughs> i think so far not so much but uh but we'll get there honestly i, th I think that's part of what maybe this is a stretch but i think the fact that we're starting in three completely different places we have chapter one at a an amateur production 
And then we've got, you know, one of the people in the production meeting her own image. And then in the next chapter, we have a guy a long time ago committing suicide and still kind of wandering around. And then we have this chapter three with Lawrence Wentworth and his problems and his recurring dream that he is sliding down a white rope in the darkness. All of these things seem so random and so disconnected in the same way that very often ourselves seem random and disconnected from one another. But what happens, things get woven together, much like a plot in Seinfeld, sort of layering of themes. It either has no plot or five plots, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So chapter three, The Quest of Hell. Who is Lawrence Wentworth? He's a historian. He's the best or second best historian in the realm. His function here is he's losing, in a way, losing his sense of academic integrity. Going along with that, his sense of reality, his ability to face reality. He's gotten into this rivalry with a fellow academic. And at first it was a scholarly debate, as we have all the time and as we ought to have over some tiny detailed military history. But it's become personal for him and he's determined to beat this other scholar at the cost of the evidence. He's starting to twist the documents only ever so slightly to support his interpretation. Yeah, this Aston Moffat. Uh, and, and, and by the way, Wentworth happens to live in the same house where years before this suicide took his own life. The narrator is talking about, well, why, you know, might he be having this dream, this recurring dream of sliding down a rope into the darkness. There are at least two personal reasons in his waking life for this, besides the nature of the hill or the haunter of his house, one of them very much in the forefront of his mind, the other secret and not much admitted. The first was Aston Moffat, the second was Adela Hunt. And Adela we met in the first chapter as being the very avant-garde young lady who talks a lot about masses. And Aston Moffat was another military historian, perhaps the only other worth mentioning. And Wentworth and he were engaged in a long and complicated controversy on the problem of the least of those skirmishes of the roses which had been fought upon the hill. Aston Moffat was a pure scholar, a holy and beautiful soul, who would have sacrificed reputation, income, and life if necessary for the discovery of one fact about the horse boy of Edward Plantagenet. He had determined his nature. Wentworth was younger and at a more critical point at that moment when, when a man's real concern begins to separate itself from his pretended to become independent of himself. He raged secretly as he wrote his letters and drew up his evidence. He identified scholarship with himself and asserted himself under the disguise of a defensive scholarship. He refused to admit that the exact detail of Edward's march was not, in fact, worth to him the cost of a single cigar. This slow loss of his integrity as an academic, right, which is contributing to the loss of his soul. Yeah. But isn't it fascinating that in addition to these two motivations, which we understand and we all have, which is ambition and lust, right, the two internal ones, there are the two external causes as well, the nature of the hill and the hunter of his house. And it's classic Williams to combine the two ordinary and yet supernatural things, right? Two moral yeah. struggles with two extraordinary supernatural things. There's something about the hill itself that has retained the intensity of the things that have happened on it. And then this man who committed suicide um, is still haunting Wentworth's house. And this chapter starts with the two of them standing in the exact same spot 
occupying the same space to find the laws of physics at two different moments in time, but the narrator and thus the reader see them both at the same time. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, it's so is the hill the enchanted object? I wonder if either the hill or the play, because mm -hmm. those two things function in one sense the way the ritual objects do in his other works, which is they serve as catalysts to reveal each character's spiritual nature and the trajectory of each person's spiritual journey, right? They're like the crime in a murder mystery, you know, Broadchurch or something. You get this sweet, sleepy little English village where everybody's so nice. And then the murder is committed. And through the course of the story, one by one by one, all their evils are revealed. You suspect everybody by the end, except the murderer. And that's what Williams's ritual objects do, right? Like the way that you respond to the grail or the stone reveals where you are in your journey. And I think people's responses to the play serve in that way. Maybe even more than the hill itself, but the hill is the one that sort of has that, that physicality, right? The materiality into which all these spiritual forces have been, have been drawn, it still retains their energies. When I think of the rival with Aston Moffat, I can't help but think of Little Miss Sunshine. Steve Carell plays the uh, Proust scholar, and there's the other Proust scholar who becomes better known than him. Anyway, yeah, it's a similar sort of thing. So as for Adela, he was very well aware of Adela, as he was aware of cigars, but he did not yet know what he would give up for her, or rather for the manner of life which included her. As Aston Moffat was bound either to lessen or heighten Wentworth's awareness of his own reputation, so Adela was bound either to increase or abolish his awareness of his age. He knew time was beginning to hurry. He could at moments almost hear it scamper. He did not very well know what he wanted to do about it. So he has been entertaining Adela and various other sort of cultured residents of the hill at his home periodically, having them come over and, and talking with them about military history, feeling very much sort of in the center of things when they do come over. There's more than a hint that he's been a bit flirty with Adela, fancies that she likes him. Adela this time comes over to his house with only this guy, Hugh Prescott, who he does not like. Uh, because Hugh Prescott seems to have designs on Adela, and indeed he does. And so there's this very telling way in which Hugh is sort of communicating to Wentworth that he wants him to back off and that Adela is his girl. Hugh meant that for Adela, these visits should stop altogether, visits to Wentworth's house. He observed an intimacy. He chose that it should not continue, partly because he wished Adela to belong to him, and partly because the mere action of breaking it would show how far Adela was prepared to go with him. His mind made arrangements. Hugh said, it'd be frightfully good of you to give me a hand with my guard, Mr. Wentworth. He infused the mister with an air of courteous deference to age, and as he ended the sentence, he stretched and bent an arm in the lazy good humor of youth. So Wentworth is being humiliated by this younger man. What happens from there? Or are there any parts of this interaction that you wanted to make sure to, to talk about that I missed? I was really struck by a moment towards the end of the two men's little bantering back and forth. At the end of it, Hugh says, just kind of casually to Adela, come on. And the narrator tells us Adela obeyed in a two word sentence there that stands out from the complicated syntax. Wentworth noted with an interior irritation that she really did. She moved to rise with something more than consent. It was what he had never had. Consent, yes, but not this obedience. This passage is very troubling to me in several ways. It's supposed to be troubling to us in the sense that Wentworth likes that. 
He wants to be able to order Adela around and have her obey his every whim. But I'm also not entirely pleased that Adela, Adela does even obey Hugh. None of these relationships are relationships of equality, harmony, companionship, that they both are these men kind of taking this woman and telling her to do what they want her to do. And then she does. And that's her first movement towards giving up some of her selfhood and some of her independence for for them, for Hugh. Yeah, because Hugh is really no better than Wentworth. He doesn't have any integrity either. He concocts the the scheme to kind of lie to Wentworth just to smooth everything over. But Wentworth in the end is the one kind of like the Jesuit who's martyred in a way into a descent into hell. Whereas Hugh, if I'm remembering right throughout the book, is left alone, doesn't have consequences. At least Hugh does want Adela for and as herself. At least he does see her as a human, even though a human to boss around and to dominate in some sense. But Wentworth doesn't even see Adela as human, and we we will see how that descent goes as we move along. Wentworth obviously is very irritated that Adela has come there with Hugh and seems to be showing him, as you were saying, Serena, a lot of deference, right? Instead of deferring to Wentworth, who's this mature scholar, she's deferring to this boy. When they go outside, Hugh asks Adela on a date. The only day that he can possibly go on this date is Thursday when she was scheduled to go and see Wentworth. And so Adela's asking, Adela makes an effort. She says, couldn't we go another week? Would this play about? Hugh says sardonically. My dear, we're going to be clutched by rehearsals every evening. Of course we can leave it if you'd rather. But you said you'd like to see that thing, the second pylon. It's your style. And as it's only on till Saturday, well, as a matter of fact, I got a couple of tickets for Thursday on the chance. I knew it'd be our only night. Hugh, Adele exclaimed, but I want frightfully to see it. They say it's got the most marvelous example of this surrealistic plastic cohesion. Oh, Hugh, how splendid of you. Right, so once you bring surrealistic plastic cohesion into the mix, it's a date. She and Hugh have decided they're going to both lie to Wentworth about why they can't come on Thursday, and they're going to go on a date instead. And that's sort of what sets us up for the beginning of Wentworth's quest of hell, as he as he decides to sort of follow them, but pretend that he's just going for a walk. Uh, he sees the two of them laughing in the moonlight, visible, audible, arm in arm talking and laughing they came he saw them pass his eyes grew blind presently he turned and went home that night when at last he slept he dreamed more clearly than ever before of his steady descent of the moon bright rope so feel free i know i skipped over a lot of stuff there that you all probably wanted to to get to feel free to bring it up but i'd also like to hear from you why is that this important moment in wentworth's damnation I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is that he's trying to escape the examination, if he's even capable of it, of his own motives, of his own soul. So by focusing um, on what other people are 
are doing to, in some way, get something over on him. He's contributing to his own corruption in the same sense he's worried about the other historian being rewarded. He's contributing to his uh, his lack of integrity. It's a serious rejection of community to do yes. this childish thing of skulking in the bushes and spying to see if the girl he likes is with another guy. It's rejecting adult, mature community where you help each other along and so forth. And it's another step of turning them into objects that should serve his pleasure rather than accepting that they are humans with free will who make decisions that he mightn't like and go ways that he doesn't want them to go. Yeah, and I feel like it it speaks to his self-centeredness that if he can't be happy, he has to go out of his way to make himself more miserable that things aren't happening the way that he wants them to be. Which I feel like this, this whole chapter is like this gradual, he's like deceiving himself more and more and more and focusing like turning inwards on himself, but without clear vision more and more and more. And I think his whole conversation with Pauline, where he's answering her about why she might be seeing her doppelganger is so funny because it's, I mean, it's ironic because he's talking about himself in that instance, like the uneducated mind is generally known by its haste to see likeness where no likeness exists. And he's gonna like soon start creating this own phantasm that he has. And so I just, I don't know, I think, I think it's so, it's so ironic that as Pauline is going one direction and she's going to go the right way eventually, he's just dragging himself further and further down. Really good. I never noticed that before. You're right. So if you read it that way, then almost every line has a double meaning. I have a notion it was supposed to foretell death. The last line, so condescending. Probably your friend was a very self-centered individual. Well, if he is the friend that he's talking about, you're right. That's so cool, Sophie. Again, like these seemingly separate plots and interactions are, are so thematically bound the more that you kind of investigate what's happening here and, and i love this point sophie i think i think you were just making he is really willingly making himself miserable instead of just forgetting about it and i think this this speaks to something that lewis wrote in one of his letters to williams about this novel that it doesn't have a big scary bad guy right it doesn't have like manasseh from war in heaven conjuring all this black magic and stuff. It's just a historian who's like the second most important historian of military history of a certain period, right? Trying to make himself the center where he shouldn't be the center. And in some ways that's so much scarier because we all do this. We all can't get over something, right? And, you know, even years later when Lewis writes The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Lucy has to look in that book and she finds the spell to figure out what people are saying about her behind her back. And granted, you know, that chapter doesn't end with her climbing down a rope in the dark. But yeah, it's this thing that we all do. We want to know what people really think of us. We want to know if they're really ignoring us. We want to know that we're significant. Uh, and, and so this hits home so much more, I think, than most of his other novels in that way. Anything else we should say about chapter three? This seemingly boring and insignificant moment in Wentworth's life, I think, is also important from a narrative or structural point of view because three of the plots start to come together. We have the plot of the production of the play, and that's why Adela and Hugh visit him to see if he can consult on the historical accuracy of the costumes. And then we have Wentworth's journey towards damnation, an important step in it in this evening. And then we have Pauline's journey towards confrontation with her doppelganger. And this is, I think, only the second time in her life that she's tried to talk to somebody about it. And the first time she was 
mocked and ignored. And this time he's barely listening to her. So I think it's important from point of view of narrative that these three come together. That's another point in the column of like why it's important that this is about a play, right? Because in, in plays, that's exactly what happens. You'll have a you'll have a scene, you'll have another scene while the actors from the first scene are changing or something like that, right? Involving different actors. Then you'll have yet another scene and gradually things start to sort of come together. Serena, I'm not the expert in modernist drama that you are. Is there anything you've noticed so far in this play about what Williams is saying about modernist drama? Ooh, yeah, thanks. And that's an excellent setup because his friendship with Elliot and the fact that they each wrote two of the Canterbury plays in back-to-back years is, is really important. But I find it interesting that Williams was much more well-known as a playwright during his lifetime than for any of the other many genres he wrote, because that was the most public way that his work got out there, right? And he really was kind of seen up there with Elliot as a modernist playwright, but in this very strange mode of ecclesiastical verse drama. And there was a surprising revival of it in this time. The Canterbury Festival ran from 1928 to 1948 with some breaks for the war, and they commissioned an ecclesiastical verse play each year from the most well-known playwrights of the time. Christopher Fry, John Maysfield, Dorothy L. Sayers is the only one who contributed to. So there's some really interesting reasons that that was going on right on the heels of and at the same time as what we think of as modernist drama, right? We think of Samuel Beckett waiting for Godot. We think of the opposite thing. Nothing in verse, very sparse, very nihilistic, not these beautiful stage spectacles about spiritual meaning. Interestingly, Williams kind of had a foot in each of those camps. And he was trying to be modernist and his poetry grows more modernist as he goes along. But he was also writing these plays that were commissioned for churches. So I think he encapsulates both of those in this novel in really clever and subtle ways. Miss Stanhope is obviously an idealized portrait of who he wants to be. And he even wrote one of his plays under the pseudonym Peter Stanhope and attended the rehearsals under that name. And people didn't know that this was Charles Williams. I thought this was a dude named Peter Stanhope who wrote this play and some confusion arose later. (laughs) So we have him being compared to Shakespeare. And the only reason he's not better than Shakespeare is because of Mrs. Perry's tautology that, well, Shakespeare is the best. And so therefore Stanhope can't be. (laughs) Um, So, wow. Okay. Williams, humble much. And then we have the play, you know, causing all these spiritual things throughout the novel. But then we have the other in the conversation between Hugh and Adela, where he's just having so much fun at the expense of modernist drama. It's pretty hilarious. Like the title, The Second Pylon, that just captures modernism in three words there. Like you don't know what it's referring to. You have no idea what the first one was. And a pylon is like this meaningless industrial object. It might as well be, you know, the 14th power drill or something. So you can tell that he has all of those playwrights in mind. And then Adela's amazing phrase, surrealist plastic cohesion, which you can almost see being a real school yeah, of modernism. I, I looked it up and could not find anything. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. Yeah, I think I think he's just having a laugh here. It's very much like when Lewis and his friends wrote a bunch of fake modernist poems and submitted them to the Criterion in the hope that Elliot would accept them and then they were going to reveal it and 
say, see, the Criterion is a fraud because these were really bad joke poems. They did not end up sending them. One of them was called The Cooking Egg. They pretended that it was authored by somebody and his twin sister with whom he was having an affair. It was this... uh, They created a whole backstory. Yeah, yeah. We're going to use fake Uh, handwriting. But it's a little odd since Williams was friends with Elliot. And he wrote at one point, better to be modern than minor. And he, he wanted to write modern verse and modern plays and yet really struggled a lot of times to overcome the kind of Edwardian pastiche that he began with. I think yeah. I think he got there eventually. I, I could see Lewis reading this and just chuckling like crazy when he gets to surrealist plastic cohesion, being very sympathetic to Williams's view. But yeah, I mean, Williams is, is fascinating because Lewis and Eliot, who viewed themselves kind of as on opposite poles of what a good poet is supposed to do and this whole idea they both admired Williams so much which which speaks to something yes really he, cool he introduced them once they had a dinner once and it did not go well much to Williams's amusement and Auden admired Williams also and I, I think when it came to Eliot at some point Williams said something like I'm gonna get this wrong but that he admired Eliot but just didn't understand him he said it in a way that seemed to suggests that he was just acknowledging his own limits there. He does say that. And it's, I believe it's in poetry at present. I think it's in the introduction to the Eliot section, um, but they each said it about the other. I greatly admire yeah, I was gonna say, it, verse, yeah. but I don't understand it. And for Eliot to say Williams poetry is too hard to understand. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> it's, it's quite hard. Let's talk about the vision of death. Such cheery chapter titles in this book we've had so far. The Magus, Zoroaster, Via Mortis, Way of Death, Quest of Hell, and now we have Vision of Death. When I first read this book, I was not very aware of the creed. And so I viewed the title mostly as kind of a downer of a title, right? Like Descent into Hell, without thinking that, oh, this is also what Christ did. He descended to the dead. He descended to hell. Yeah, it's not only meant to have negative resonance. Okay, so Vision of Death. This is, for my money, the most confusing chapter of a book that has quite a few confusing chapters. Um, can somebody give me an idea of what this chapter is about? How to become an advanced occult master. It's about how to achieve adeptship through advanced visualization techniques. <laughs> That's one interpretation anyway. All right. What about on the level of, can we say the P word? Can we say plot at this point? What's going on? We've got Margaret Ann Struther and Pauline's interaction with this grandmother, Margaret, and who she's taking care of. The grandmother is kind of the saintly woman, right? In contrast, I guess, in in a lot of ways to Wentworth, um, and also someone who doesn't seem to be afraid even of death in contrast to her to her granddaughter whom, whom she doesn't know very well because she wasn't around her growing up uh, as they're talking with each other in comes Lily Samuel so Lily who's a very nervous woman comes in telling them that they should try to have good dreams or they should try to make their dreams more pleasant you must let me tell you tales instead Lily Samuel answered come and see me she's saying to 
Pauline, who she's been able to tell that Pauline is dealing with something, um, reiterating this offer. I just want to be useful to you. You know, please come and see me. I'll tell you pleasant tales and help you forget all this fear. The grandmother is nonplussed by this. At that point, the poet Peter Stanhope and Myrtle Fox enter. Uh, a bit more talk. And as far as that first part, were there interactions, particular things that are said that you all want to make sure that, that we hit on and talk about? Yes. This is the chapter that has one of my favorite lines in it, said by Mrs. Anstruther. And she says, a salvation is quite often a terrible thing of frightening good. So it carries forward that theme that we already established in the first chapter with terrible good. And what is that? Specifically this line, because she references salvation, it makes me think of that imagery of Eustace in the Don Treader getting his scales clawed off by Aslan and it's very painful and and frightening. And so that's what that kind of evokes in me. But yeah, just in general, I he's carrying forward that theme. It's so prevalent throughout this book. I'm glad you brought this up, Megan, because I, I glossed over it. This comes on the heels of her grandmother rehearsing to her, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, how their ancestor died, that he'd been a Protestant martyr under Queen Mary. Then the said Struther, being come to the stake, cried out very loudly, To him that hath shall be given. And one of the friars that went with him struck at him, and said, Naughty heretic! And what of him that hath not? And he shouted with a great laughter, pointing at the friar and calling out, He shall lose all that he hath. And again, the Lord hath sent away the rich with empty bellies. Then they stripped him, and when he was in his shirt, he looked up and said, The ends of the world are upon me. And so they set him at the stake, and put the fire to the wood, and as the fire got hold of him, he gave a loud cry and said, I have seen the salvation of my God, and so many times till he died, which was held for a testimony that the Lord had done great things for him there in the midst of the fire. And under the Lady Elizabeth, the place was called Struthers' salvation for many years. Mrs. Anstrother stopped, and perhaps the Lord did, she said, though I would not quite take Fox's word for it, which is, which is just awesome. So, and that's when Pauline says, it was a terrible thing. How could he shout for joy like that? And, and that's when Mrs. Anstrother said, salvation is a terrible thing, a frightening good. We have this ancestor martyr, right, who is brave enough to face death you know, with great aplomb, right? As Michael Scott would say. So here's another strand in this story that we're telling that Pauline, who's been seeing her own image walking toward her, also has this martyr, great, 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 great grandfather. And then we have her grandmother talking with her about Peter Stanhope, how he's a great poet, how most people don't seem to understand his plays. Pauline is telling her that Catherine Perry is involved in the production. Mrs. Anstruther, Margaret Anstruther says, my dear, I used to know Catherine Perry very well. No one has destroyed more plays by successful production. I sometimes wonder, it's wrong, whether she has done the same thing with her life. It's wrong, she's a good creature, and she has behaved very well in all her unrehearsed effects. But I feel she relies too much on elocution and not enough on poetry. Pauline meditated on this. I don't think I quite understand, she said. How the elocution? You're a little inclined to it yourself, my dear, Mrs. Anstruther answered. Your elocution is very just and very effective, but a certain breadth of the verse is lacking. No one could have been kinder to me than you have. We've done very well together. 
I as the patient and you as the keeper. That's what I mean by elocution. So I still don't understand what they're talking about here. And I realize this comes from a time when there was far more reading aloud than there currently is. I put it to you. What do you think they're talking about? How do you destroy poetry? How do you destroy drama through elocution, through reading in a certain way? It seems to me what he's getting at here is bringing up the possibility that sometimes all you're getting with something that's so-called a work of art is empty technique with no real soul. It's just, it's something that's well put together, but isn't really communicating anything much, if that makes sense. It's a metaphor for life. I mean, like Pauline is executing her role pretty well, but we know that she's pretty self-centered and she's not really doing it out of this notion of a breath of life. Or I'm thinking that the center piece of that would be love, that if you're not actually doing these things out of love, then it's just empty elocution. And you could probably translate that into some sort of theology of love as how it applies to writing and reading poetry as well. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that it seems elocution is playing a role and poetry is full sincerity, full inhabiting, uh, breathing into this part that you've been given. And that's where the play is so central, right? And we're going to see how the play transforms them and how the play becomes a living thing that kind of opens the gates of heaven for them, which might explain why Stanhope then brings in these four virtues that you need for poetry, but I don't understand that bit. So I'd love to hear somebody else expound upon the four virtues that Stanhope says are necessary. Yeah, what page is that? Stanhope and Myrtle come in, they begin to talk with them as well. Yeah, page 63, is that right? Yes, that's Where, right. What What does one need to say poetry, Mr. Stanhope? She asked. Stanhope laughed. <laughs> what but the four virtues, clarity, speed, humility, courage. Don't you agree? And I've destroyed Peter Stanhope with my elocution, I apologize. But yeah, the passage building on the earlier one when Pauline realized her grandmother was using a metaphor and had implications in what she was saying and had hidden a rebuke. So those so when she asks Stanhope, what does one need to say poetry? She's using poetry again as a metaphor and implication and a self rebuke. So she's basically saying, as you said, Sophie, like, what do I need to really live and to really love the breath of life. But why those four virtues? Some of them overlap with the archetypes from the place of the lion, hmm. but not all of them. And I don't see them mapping onto any particular four Christian virtues or four occult principles. They seem to be sort of a unique grouping. It seems possibly as simple as someone who's heard his poetry get butchered by uh, by actors, right? Just saying the four things that he wants people to do when they read poetry as part of a dramatic production, right? Or, or maybe even just read poetry generally, right? So clarity seems to be a thing that, that you desire, especially if the thing is the poetry rather than your performance of the poetry, which meshes with the idea of humility there, right? That you need to be humble enough to make it not about you and your amazing performance of this poetry, but rather confidence in the power of the poetry itself to come through clarity and humility come in there courage again maybe being bold enough to rely on the power of the poetry itself being willing to look kind of foolish or or like less of a good actor or something like that but speed is interesting speed means something more to him if we take the place of the lion you know it's one of the virtues and it, it's also an important part of his canterbury play thomas cranmer of canterbury that in the end when canterbury decides to recant his recantation the skeleton who's the both the devil figure and the christ figure and his conscience and the chorus prompts him to run to run to the stake with speed 
but I don't remember clearly enough or understand clearly enough the speed in the place of the lion to know if it helps us here. Megan, do you remember it well enough to know if it helps us here? I was trying to remember, but honestly, it's been a minute since, <laughs> since I've read The Place of the Lion. Because with Williams, everything always has to have a deeper meaning almost. And so it, you can't just say, oh, speed, you, you recite it quickly so you get it over with. <laughs> Maybe if it's bad poetry, that's what you do. I don't know. It's You just get, get it over with real quick. Yeah, the speed is the one's tripping me up because I think all of the other ones make sense. Like you were saying, Chris, you know, clarity and humility kind of go together as well as courage. I was thinking to courage in the sense of poetry. I mean, especially for Williams, there's an inherent power in poetry. The the way that poetry can convey ideas in ways that not like prose or or even plays, if they're not verse plays, can convey ideas. Yeah, there's a there's a certain power there that should be uh, approached with with courage and humility. I don't know. I, the speed is the one that's tripping me up though. You would think that you would want he would want you to kind of linger over the the language and the words. I don't know. I found a passage on this in Charles Hutter's collection, The Rhetoric of Vision. There's a there's a commentary on this passage. In Descent into Hell, speed takes on special personal significance for Williams as few words do for any author. As one of the four virtues Stanhope feels necessary for the proper recitation of poetry, speed seems to mean the rhythmic forward drive inherent in music linked with energy, vigor, forthrightness, directness, and a lack of the affectation associated with rhetoric and elocution. That's an essay by Alice Davidson. Now, the four virtues, though, I have just discovered are not unique to Williams. The four in that order do occur in the Wycliffe translation of the Bible, and I think maybe in the Dewey Reams, too. If I find out anything else, I will let you know. Those are listed as virtues in the in the translation of the Bible? I haven't gotten that far yet, okay. <laughs> but there is a scholarly work entitled yes. Clarity, Speed, Humility, Courage, The Bible in the Renaissance, Essays on Biblical Commentary and Translation. Well, I wonder if it's speed, yeah, in the old sense, the power, right? That's, that's yeah. what the word speed used to mean. And, and that goes with a sort of forward momentum. And I'm glad we talked about clarity, speed, courage, humility, because it's repeated throughout around about page 65. You have this other contrast set up between verse and tales, because Louise Samil is offering to tell Pauline good tales. And Pauline waved back reluctantly before she told herself tales. It was needful to know what there was in verse. She must hear more. Why are tales not so good? Something that Lily Samil is offering to tell Pauline to distract her from her fear and why is verse terrible good for Pauline and Strother? Any, any ideas? I think, again, it comes down to the difference between accepting reality versus rejecting reality. And there are, of course, fictional narratives that help us to face reality and understand reality more. But what Lily Samiel is offering is dreams instead of reality. Which reminds me, that's the exact same thing that the old magician is offering in Dimer, one of C.S. Lewis's little-known narrative poems. And the magician in Dimer is actually a caricature of William Butler Yeats. So we might understand this passage better if we think about Yeats's Celtic Twilight phase as sort of what Lily Samuel is offering, Samuel is offering, as opposed to William's searching for the more hard, sharp poetry of Yeats's later phase and brings in 
Byzantium and so forth. Both of these poets, Yeats and Williams, their later verse moves away from that kind of misty magic into something with a lot more clarity to it and a lot more solid heft. So I think Samil is offering an escape from reality, opium dreams in the form of these fantastical wild tales. So you don't have to face your fears. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, though, that William should set up that opposition in a novel, right? Williams is a poet who really wants to be a great poet, but he also right. has to write these novels. It's fascinating. Margaret Ann Struther, who sees all these disparate threads and sees them all sort of coming together in the object of the hill. Reading this vision is an experience, not unlike an actual vision. It's an experience and it's difficult to analyze and you can pull a lot of things out of it, but there's this running through it, this pattern of presumably the suicide, but she's sort of absorbed into the mountain and the mountain is the mass of people who are all connected, even though they don't think they are. As this light grows on the mountain, and she's seeing this sort of four-dimensional vision of, of the mountain she lives on. In the time of her novitiate, it seemed to her sometimes that though her brains and emotions acted this way or that, yet all that activity went on along the sides of a slowly increasing mass of existence made from herself and all others with whom she had to do. And that strong and separate happiness, for she felt it as happiness, though she herself might be sad, her sadness did but move on it as the mountaineer on the side of a mountain. That happiness was the life which she was utterly to become. So there's this building mass of happiness, right? The city is heaven. The city is the consummation of all human life together. Individuals have the choice to remain individual and therefore lose themselves or to draw to other individuals and become even more distinctly themselves, even as they acknowledge their connection with one another. She's given this vision of death that is not a pessimistic vision of death whatsoever, right? It transports her. Is there anything else that, that you all wanted to mention about this vision. I believe that this passage is one of several examples in William's fiction when he writes his own occult experiences into the narrative. And there's some phrases that he chooses throughout it that are clues towards that, I think. On page 69, we have Pauline and her grandmother, and they're each at different stages of the way. And so at different stages of the occult order that Williams was a member of, the different levels or grades that they'd get initiated into, they would learn more and more difficult meditation or divination techniques. And we learn in The Greater Trumps that the character there, who's a lot like Margaret Sybil in that book, that she's achieved this kind of visionary perfect submission of her will through days of pain and nights of prayer. And here, similarly, Margaret has had a lifetime of practicing nighttime vigils until she's developed this freedom which her spirit can exercise its supernatural functions and can see with increasing clearness. So in the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross and in its predecessor, the Order of the Golden Dawn, there were many, many different divination practices and ceremonial magic practices, but the majority of them were designed to train the practitioner to be able to do extremely advanced visualization techniques. And these were all aimed at the transformation of the self. So they might choose something like one of the tarot cards or one of the Kabbalistic signs on the Sephirotic tree or one of the Zodiac emblems. 
and they would meditate on it until they went into this deep trance state. And then they would picture to a high degree of vividness, far beyond anything we've ever done in ordinary daydreaming or imagination. Probably the only people who have done this who aren't mystics would be visual artists, right? Who have trained their inner eye. And then they would see these extremely detailed visions that they believe had prophetic truth to them. So I do believe that that's what Margaret is doing in this, especially because Williams emphasizes that she's had to practice this for years in order to develop this ability. And like you said, Chris, that she is not asleep until the end. It says it starts to blend into dream, right? She starts to fall asleep. And even the particular type of vision of this enormous mountain and all these people who are maybe as small as insects on it and how she can kind of see their interactions in miniature. She can kind of see into the spiritual nature of their interactions. That seems to be something that these practitioners would try to visualize. And the mountain itself, well, I thought, okay, so it might be Battle Hill, right, um, that they're on, but or maybe it might be Dante's Mount Purgatory. They're all traveling up or down this mountain to their ultimate eternal destiny. But there's also a mountain that's very important in these occult orders. It's called the mountain of Abagnos, and it's seen as being the center of the universe. And it's it's the mountain towards which all of their rituals tend. And they wouldn't learn about this mountain until they reached the special second inner order, which Williams did reach and was actually a master of the ceremonies in that order. But most importantly, I think for this novel is that on that mountain supposedly is where you would finally meet your true self. And right before this passage, Margaret is meditating on the knowledge of the holy doctors and thinking that the best maxim towards knowledge is not know thyself, which the Greek taught, but instead know love, which Christians teach. But then this is the interesting clause, though both in the end were one. So the, mm. the Greeks or the pagans, you know, Hellenistic wisdom teaches us you have to know who you really are. Christianity says you have to know love with a capital L, whom Williams identifies with Christ, but both in the end were one. And that is the core doctrine of A.E. Waite's Fellowship of the Rosy Cross that Williams was a member of. You will ultimately know the Christ self within you. And on the the holy mountain of Abignos, you will meet your real divine self, which is a God, and you will unite with that divine self and become truly who you were meant to be. So I guess we'll have to revisit that again when we get to a certain significant moment a little later in the novel. Yeah, that is so fascinating. Thank you, Serena. That's, that's, yeah, that's that brings indulging so me to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. And it also, it highlights the way that this, that this book can be scanned both in terms of Christian doctrine and also this cult that nobody knows about, that it can make sense in both ways, as is proper, I guess, to, to Williams, who is a member of, you know, the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, as well as a Christian. And that but, particular yeah. order, A.E. Waite rewrote all the liturgies to bring out what he saw as their true Christian nature. And he replaced, for instance, all the Egyptian symbolism with Christian symbolism. But still, the ultimate point was, you have a Christ self within you, you just don't know it, you need to get in touch with it. And you can do that on this holy mountain. And I love that knowledge was yet not the know thyself of the Greek so much as the know love of the Christian, though both in the end were one. That is like an encapsulation of what's going to happen later on in the book. Yeah, that's brilliant. Hearing you talk about that, Serena, made me think about a John Calvin quote, actually. It says, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected by many 
stigmatized, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. I mean, it feels like it lines up <laughs> with what you were just saying. So I was like, wait a minute, John Calvin said that. That's not like some, you know, occult you know, master over in the corner over here, you know, it's like, this is John Calvin out of his institute. There's so much knowledge that does seem to line up with Christianity in ways that I would never would have noticed before if it hadn't been for Williams, like getting into Charles Williams, I think. And so that kind of gives me more of an openness to those ideas and being able to see them in the light of Christ. I think it's, it's very illuminating. As you were speaking, it reminded me too of a Simone Whale quote, I think from Gravity and Grace. I think it went Christ likes us to prefer truth to him because before being Christ, he is truth. If one turns aside from him to go towards the truth, one will not go far before falling into his arms. Mm, that's good. Can I read out another quote from the vision that's super relevant to what we're talking about here? Please. It's on page 73. It's one of the parts of the vision that Margaret sees. Outside her own house, she saw Pauline come out and look bitterly this way and the other and start to walk down the road. And presently, as if from the mountainside, another Pauline had grown visible and come to meet the first, her head high and bright as the summit, her eyes bright with the supernatural dawn, her movements as free and yet disposed as the winds that swept the chasms. She came on, her feet, which at first made no noise, beginning to sound on the pavement as she took on more and more of mortal appearance. And the first Pauline saw her and turned and fled, and the second pursued her. And far away down the dark streets and round the dark mountain, they vanished from sight. If I had read this vision more carefully on my first time through the novel, I would have understood a later passage much, much, much better. So that is a beautiful foreshadowing or forebrightening. <laughs> the Hound of Heaven is pursuing Pauline in the shape of herself. to end this episode of the Inklings Variety Hour. Before we go, I'd like to ask you our sort of token absurd question. This novel in part is about an adaptation of a poem to a play. If you had to adapt this novel to some other medium, what medium would you pick? What would this actually translate to besides a novel, if anything? I'll confess, I have fantasized about writing my own screenplay of this, of this novel. Uh, I don't know how it would work or how it would translate total because so much of Williams is in his language. It, it, yes, the dialogue, but also just, I don't know how you would translate this to the screen, but I really want to try to do it. I, I don't know what director would make it. Nobody would probably pick it up, but... <laughs> You should totally do it. I don't have any experience writing screenplays. I'm more of a prose novel writer, but I think it would be fun to try to do. I think you should do it and then be there to coach the actors about how to yes, read the how lines to do it, right? They yeah. need to trust your poetry. Um, yes. and in their lives. And when anybody questions me, I'll just read them the screenplay. Be like, there. <laughs> just... I think David Lynch could get justice. There yeah. you go. Well, put me in touch with David Lynch and <laughs> some big fantasy director. I don't know. You know, somebody like uh, who's the, the Pan's Labyrinth guy or, you know, somebody who oh, could do um, Del Toro. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Somebody who could get some of the creepy aspects and wouldn't that. mind taking on the visionary part of it. Yeah, Del Toro would really double down and triple down on the creepy aspects, I think. Maybe too much. Uh, yeah, maybe 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 distractingly, but but <laughs> maybe he'd be 
Maybe it'd be great. We do get like a mouth of hell pretty soon. And we do get like yeah. some very adult content coming up. Any other ideas, suggestions for, uh, for adaptations? I've always wondered why there weren't more operas based on Tolkien's work. Right. So there is a song cycle. He did clever oh, Donald yes. Swan on a song cycle, but there's okay. no opera. Do you know the opera of Paralandro? No. I do not yeah. know about this thing. Yeah, there's an opera of Paralandra. It was written long ago, but then like re-premiered. It was resurrected and re-premiered in Atilamu in the 2010s. I'm not going to remember exactly what year, but in Oxford. And uh, Judith and Brendan Wolf, who edit the Journal of Inkling Studies, were involved in the production of that. That is awesome. There's a boy soprano cast as the voice of the Eldila, which is really a good choice. That is really cool. I think I would do a play because I, I just love the play within a play. I just think that would be super cool. And you could you'd sort of be able to visualize what it's like trying to figure out what the chorus is going to be and sort of watch them all mess around with things. And I think the sets could be really cool. It would be really neat to get more of the play within your play. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a very rude mechanicals kind of thing, right? Because they're butchering this play. I mean, the, the difficulty partly, though, I guess would be that, like, we're not as familiar with the tropes and the cliches that they're sort of going with that Williams is satirizing, but it'd still be a lot of fun. Immerse yourself in a lot of Shakespeare's comedies and late problem plays that maybe you'd catch the aesthetic. for joining us in this in this discussion this has been this has been so much fun but thank you so much david carter sophie where can people find you just spotify beneath the willow tree and megan how about you awesome. i don't i don't tweet a lot but i'm on twitter so <laughs> feel yeah. free to follow me there serena how about you uh, it's hard to avoid me you can bump into me anywhere <laughs> twitter facebook instagram you know my website good stuff there so check it out thanks awesome well thank you all again so much please come back whenever you'd like to as often as you'd like to and listeners please also come back whenever you'd like to as often as you'd like to thank you all goodbye all blessed encounter full of joy unscheduled on the Geeson fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. Margaret Anstruther, unsleeping but contented in her bed, Mrs. Anstruther reviewed the afternoon. She was glad to have seen Peter Stanhope, but she was not particularly glad to have seen Lily Samil. But she freely acknowledged, in the words of a too often despised poet, that since God suffered her to be, she too was God's minister, and labored for some good by Margaret Anstruther not understood. This work is so full of one sentence, right, that if you took that sentence to heart, it would transform your life and your entire way of interacting with other people. This idea that like, oh yeah, I don't like that person very much, but since God suffers them to be, they are God's minister in some way. If everyone took that to heart, my gosh, the world would be transformed, right? There are just too many to count of these nuggets of wisdom. And, and Williams is apparently po quoting another poet, but it's, it's great.